Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, B. Winward. Welcome to the podcast, B. Thank you. Yeah, this is the first podcast we're recording in 2020. We've released some in 2020, but they were actually recorded in 2019. So, B, you're our New Year's um, kick it off right 2020 guest. So we're really grateful you're here. I'll give our listeners an overview of Dee. Um, she is in her mid to late 20s. She is gay. She is LDS. She is a return missionary, served a missionary in Guatemala. Um, there she became friends with one of our other podcast guests, Sister Lissa Edwards, that teaches seminary at Lehigh High. Um, Lee, um, sorry, B did graduate from Lehigh high school and is graduating in the spring of 2020, just in a few months from UVU with a degree in leadership. She is active in her YSA ward. Um, it's a ward in Orem. She serves as a Relief Society teacher. And um, she's done a great deal of humanitarian work. We visited a little bit ahead of time. She's been to Africa, India, Thailand, Mexico, multiple times, um, just doing humanitarian work. And B is like many millennials I meet in their 20s with just an outward focus to want to help others. And it's, they're just a different generation than my generation. And when I, this millennial group, I don't want to make total generalizations, but there's just some incredible, wonderful people in their 20s and 30s that are really wired to serve others and and um, focusing on careers and other efforts to be able to do that. But if you're not one of those, I don't want you to feel guilty. This is the non-guilty podcast. I don't want anybody to have more guilt in their life because of ways someone else is serving. We're all just doing our best. And in some ways, the 20s and 30s are a time to get our education and and uh, move on with our lives so we can do more service later. Anything that I've said, B, that, you, that is incorrect, you want to correct? No, that's that's wonderful. And um, the B's kind of an answer to prayer because I recognize we have more podcasts from male um, gay guests, bisexual guests, than we do female. And in fact, I got a message over the Christmas break, somebody asking, you know, can we have more stories of of women? And I want to have more stories of women and have a balance there. Um, but by no design, we've just had more male guests. So um, thanks for being on the podcast. Um, B. So just tell us, um, there's usually this process of coming out that people tell me about where they first need to come out to themselves and then they come out to other people. Talk about that first part for you, coming out to yourself. Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like my coming out has been a little bit different than probably most people's for a few reasons. Uh, one of them being it wasn't a surprise to many people when I started coming out to other people, but it was kind of still a surprise to me when I was coming out to myself. Um, I was about 22. I was a missionary. I did not go at the age change, so I went when I was 21, and I was still there. And when I started realizing, like, hey, these feelings are real. Um, this is something that's obviously not going to go away, and I need to figure out what to do with it. So... I mean, I went on the mission because I, I tell people I went on a mission because I fell in love, not with any person or anything as much as I fell in love with the gospel. It was the first time in my life when I was taking it seriously and actually studying 
and wanted to share it with people around me. And I feel very blessed to be able to do that uh, in any way, even still. So in in Guatemala, Latinos are very expressive, very um, compassionate and passionate people. And so it was very normal for my companions to like hold my hand as we walked down the street or a member, if a member was accompanying us or even investigators, sometimes they would come and teach with us because they catch the fire and they want to go. And I remember distinctly holding hands with a girl that was coming to teach with us and just being like, oh no, I think like, I think I have these feelings of almost like a crush with her. And obviously nothing happened more than like we held hands and we went and taught and that was it. But that was really eye-opening to me as a first time of really accepting like, okay, this is it. This is my life. Um, And I really didn't know what that meant at the time. But just kind of slowly starting to say, okay, like these are real feelings. um, And trying to understand where to go from there. Um, Thanks for just being so honest, B, it takes a little courage just to say that kind of an experience happened on your mission. I think, you know, you didn't do anything wrong there. I think you know that. But sometimes when people have an experience like that and they feel that kind of a feeling, a crush, there's so much shame that comes with that. And they think God doesn't love them and they think they've done something wrong and they don't know who to reach out to and maybe share that with. Right. it's a pre- and so most in your situation would probably keep that just to themselves, but it might sort of cycle and cycle into a sort of self-loathing and shame. And I don't know if that happened, but I just admire you saying that out loud on the podcast because you didn't do anything wrong there. And you just learn more about who you are. And um, I would, and so any thoughts more on that before we move on? Um, no, I just, I, I appreciate that validation. Like I can look back now and say like, yeah, I know I didn't do anything wrong. At the time it was very alarming I remember coming home from the mission and talking to my bishop and being like, oh, yeah, this is totally a phase, even though I knew that it wasn't. But I wanted him to think that. So there was definitely a lot of shame and guilt and this idea of self-loathing that even now can present itself at times. So, Yeah. um, Talk about before your mission, just if you if you walk us back to when you were in your late teens in high school, were you considering you were gay or was this not even something in your mind at times um I think most of the time in high school I think mostly about when I was like a junior senior in high school I just kind of thought I was super awesome awesome (laughs) yeah everybody should feel that way oh yeah I don't know how it really happened because teenagers don't really think that but like I had a lot of friends I played sports my grades weren't great but that's fine (laughs) C's get degrees right but um yeah like in high school I just kind of felt like kind of on top of a lot of things um looking back it makes me chuckle because even in high school I definitely had a lot of attractions towards other girls there were uh, there are a couple that I can point out that we were kind of like quote-unquote dating um although when I was still in high school the most that ever happened was like holding hands or maybe like cuddling on the couch during a movie um so it's just funny to me that like I couldn't recognize that in myself when it was so present. Any thoughts why? Oh, I've wondered this a lot. I think mostly I just didn't want that to be the case. Um, 
a lot of my family can be very conservative. Um, and I think that was a big driving force of like, push that away or pretend it doesn't exist. Uh, never say it out loud because if you say it out loud, that makes it real. But yeah, I guess just a lot of the social stigmas of the time as well. I mean, that was 10 years ago. So a lot has changed in even just 10 years. Talk about, were you talking to God about these feelings and saying, God, is this real? Take this away. Or were you just, some people I talk to won't even talk to God about some of these feelings and some will. Yeah, I personally did not. <laughs> I didn't talk to anybody about it, not even myself. Um, I think by the time I got to high school, I was kind of just starting to understand that God was more than just like this magic floating orb in the sky or like ball of energy. I was like finally really grasping like, whoa, God is a person and like we are for real his children. Um, and so a lot of my study and prayers were to learn more about that. Like, okay, you're real. Tell me more about you. Like help me understand why that changes my life or what I should do with this information. And I didn't really want to share a lot about myself. I think I didn't really trust a lot of it still. So I don't know if that makes sense. It does. <laughs> Talk about your emotional health. Some in those high school years are just fine emotionally, and some are in really dark spots. Most of the time in high school, I I would say I was overall fine. Um, like I said, I had a lot of friends. I had a lot of fun. I kind of thought that I like owned the school a little bit. Cool. <laughs> um, I was a little bit cocky. <laughs> I still can be sometimes. Okay. But um, I mean, there were definitely moments, especially if I was alone, that things would get really dark or scary or hard. Um, and I participated in like self-harm for a long time. In but high was, school or later? Uh, both. Both. I'd say when things really got hard would be after high school. Um, after high school and during and after the mission even, I feel like is when things really start to kind of tighten and, and pull and, and get really difficult. Talk about, um, it's the, I want to talk about the self-harm period. Um, thanks for bravely bringing that up. How much, did, let's talk about the time from, graduating from high school to your mission, how long was that period of time? Um, that was uh, like four years. Four years. About so four or four and a half years. It's like another whole high school yeah, experience. Yeah, I graduated high school when I was 17 just because my birthday is in July. Um, and then the mission you go when you're 21. So. And so talk about those years. Um, it sounds like those years were harder than your high school year. Mm-hmm. I and think. And was that tied into being gay or just other things that came during those four plus years? Oh gosh, I was still very much in denial about being gay at that time. So I think probably a combination because for me, like obviously I knew it was there. I knew what was happening. Um, graduating was good, but also a little bit hard. I really didn't want to go to college, um, but I have a twin sister and she's amazing. She's literally my other half. Um, cool. And she really helped push me to go to college. She actually like one day was like, yeah, I, I registered you for financial aid and school. So we're going to go together. <laughs> um, 
And so I think just not really knowing what I was doing with my life or where I wanted to go, I kind of thought like, yeah, I'll graduate and I'll work and just that'll be my life. I didn't really see anything above that. Um, and losing a lot of like high school friends, whether they got married or went on missions or just moved away. And so trying to navigate making new friends and, and things like that, which obviously worked out. Um, I ended up finding rugby in college and that was a huge blessing before the mission. It created definitely a, a family That's for great. me and a place to belong. So, um, Talk about self-harm and the reason I, if you're willing to, because I know there's other yeah. listeners that are engaging in self-harm and, and perhaps you can be a healer to them or give them some perspective. Do you, do you want to, I'll just let you kind of run with as much as you want to. Um, do you know why, what was going on behind the self-harm? Um, when I first kind of learned, I guess, about self-harm, I was in, I think, seventh or eighth grade. Um, and kids would do it just to like be tough, like, Oh, you can burn yourself with an eraser if you rub it back and forth and, and it makes you tough. And I always have had this persona of like, I want to be strong. I want to be tough. I'm a protector. So I think it kind of started like that. And, and through this idea of like being tough, it was also like, well, I can never show when I'm upset and I can never show that I really feel like I don't belong. I can never show that, um, things are hard or like I, I knew something inside of me felt fundamentally different from my peers. Um, and that was, that created some like self-hatred. And I think that really just kind of pushed this self-harm to continue for a long time. Um, but yeah, I, I would think, I mean, like, I would say if anybody's struggling with that, like, don't feel like an outcast because of it like it's I don't want to say it's normal but like you're gonna be okay um and there are people who care about you um thank you um yeah. I didn't you know as an ecclesiastical leader I didn't have any experience with that and then I had one of the YSAs come in and talk about how um you know he engaged in self-harm and um told me what he did and I I just didn't have any tools to understand that and I'm I think we got him some clinical help but then he kind of I listened sometimes the YSAs would tell me about what's going on with them yeah. and I learned a lot and one of the th things I learned in this world of self-harm is he, that he felt so much pain inside that it was just a way of de dealing with the pain it was mm -hmm. sort of changing this kind of pain that's hard to quantify and hard to see on the outside. Maybe the the only person that can really understand that pain is the person feeling it with other types of pain that was more physical in nature. Yeah. And then the brain would concentrate on that type of pain. Does yeah. that resonate with you? Oh, definitely. I tell people often, like, I will take physical pain over emotional pain any day because it's been quite the process. I've been in therapy for, like, four years trying to even be able to, like, feel my own emotions let alone know what to do with them once I feel them. So the idea of like, I know that something's hurting inside of me, but I don't know how to talk about it or even really what it is. But if something hurts outside of me, at least I know what to do with that. 
So well said, B. And for our listeners, when I when you hear the name B, don't add E's to it or E A. It's just B. <laughs> Does it even have a dot after it, or is it just the single initial B? Um, on my Facebook, it's just B, just the letter B. All right. So yeah. everybody that's thinking about B's name, I want you to see it just as a <laughs> capital letter B. I think. Um, what you said was really very well said. I love the way you talked about the outside pain versus the emotional pain and. Um, I've really tried to understand more about this space, even though I've no clinically, not clinically trained, but you said some other really insightful things that it was kind of getting a handle on this emotional pain and understanding where it was come from and even able to talk about it. I, do you feel like part of getting over emotional pain and dealing with emotional pain is to be able to talk about it to a trusted person and, and the need to sort of process that with somebody, or do you feel like you can just solve that on your own? I think it depends person to person. For me, coming from a place where I really didn't have any tools of no fault of anybody, I don't think. Um, But I didn't even have words. Like, I didn't even know, like, my own feeling words, things like angry, sad, upset, frustrated. I didn't really use a lot of those words as much as, like, if I could do something physically, whether it was go run or um, injure myself in some way, a lot of times with the self-harm, I would try and find ways that like, like burning or cutting, but ways that were like very physically painful because that was the only way to let things out. Um, I think mostly because I just didn't have a vocabulary. So I think first, before anything else, we need some kind of vocabulary, some kind of vernacular. And then whether it's talking to somebody or writing or rapping or whatever it is that people do you know like what is rapping i don't know like you know like rapper on rapping. the radio okay that kind of rapping <laughs> yeah i'm coming out of the <laughs> holiday season I mean, listeners, I so i'm thinking of wrapping <laughs> christmas presents i mean sure origami <laughs> why not why not that's great <laughs> but yeah i think the first tool and the biggest tool that helped me was just even getting words for what i may or may not be feeling but just having words to say like okay, this is a possibility. Maybe I feel let down by something. Whereas before I wouldn't ever say that or even think of it because it wasn't, it just wasn't there. Uh, Do you feel like you're, if a hundred percent, if your emotional, I sometimes call about these gas tanks, your emotional gas tank, your emotional health. Do you have a feeling of where you are right now? Do you feel like you're at 95%, 100% 100% being sort of totally emotionally healthy or do you, do you have a way to even know that because you can't exactly put your finger into a, a blood pressure machine and get a number? <laughs> no, yeah, that makes sense. Um, currently in my life, I think I would say I'm, I'm very close to 100%. That's great, I don't, B. I don't know exactly what 100% might look at, but I feel like a lot of times I don't notice how far I've come until I say something and then I'll be like, whoa three years ago, I wouldn't have even had words for that. Like an example would be, I was talking to my sister and I was telling her like, Hey, I feel hurt about this thing that happened and I don't want to feel hurt. And I don't want to feel like I'm hiding. And just having those kind of words where before it would have been like, this sucks. And that would be the whole conversation. (laughs) So. I loved what you just said, you know, just the difference there. Both sort of acknowledge some pain. This sucks. Yeah. Um, But the first way you said that this hurts and then talk about why it hurts and sort of have the vocabulary and the tools. And, and sometimes I've learned even permission to be able to feel that way. Sometimes Mm -hmm. 
I think people say, well, I shouldn't say how it hurts because this may not hurt somebody else. And if I vulnerably open up, the person I'm opening up to may not validate my hurt. So it just hurts more. Yeah. Yeah. Validation is super important and permission to ourselves is super important. Um, I have a phrase I like to think of. I say, don't should on yourself. (laughs) Explain that. Um, It's this idea of like, when we add should to something, it it makes life more difficult, I think, um, because anytime there's a should, there's an it's basically automatically putting a blame on like, oh, well, if I should feel that way, but I don't, then something's wrong automatically instead of just acknowledging like, cool, I feel this way. I would like to feel that way, <laughs> but we just take away the should. And it's hard. It's super hard. But it, um, the more I practice it, I see a lot more like I feel like my mind opens a lot more and my heart opens more. All these podcasts, we didn't visit a lot ahead of time, B and I, before we started. We said a prayer, but I just love how sometimes conversations that I've never had on a podcast just start to happening. And this is one <laughs> of those. It's very interesting for me. And I think hopefully for some listeners, I've I've thought a lot about what you just said about feel. We just charged our clock, listeners. We've the one of those wind-up clocks on the top of the hour actually makes a noise, and you can hear it maybe for the first time. <laughs> um, anyway, how we feel and being okay with how we feel. I have no scripture account or or scripture story of a teaching that says we shouldn't feel how we feel. Um, and so I think, and that we shouldn't, in a, and understanding that people feel differently than we do. Um, so I think we've got to sort of normalize how we feel. And when somebody opens up how they feel about a, an experience that we may have not felt the same way, I think we create space for each other to feel the way they feel, because I don't think we can control how we feel. I think we can control perhaps how we respond and how we process how we feel. And it's possible if we want to feel different, like you just said, that we develop, um, that we're able to do that. So, yeah, I probably would like to feel different at times about some situations I'm in. Any thoughts more on that? I mean, I feel like my mind is racing with thoughts, but no, I definitely just agree creating space for people and, and hopefully creating safe spaces for people where they can sincerely just be who they are. Talk about um, just if, you know, going through this time of of pain, self-harm, how much of that tied was to your sexual orientation or like 30%, 80%? If you had been straight, I realize these are unanswerable questions. If you had, (laughs) if you had been, if you are straight, it's not like you weren't straight back then, but if you have always been straight, mm-hmm. um, do you think you would have gone through this difficult, these difficult chapters? I mean, personally, I feel like I've always been gay, <laughs> and I don't see that going right. away. I agree with that. In case um, I just inferred something differently, <laughs> excuse me. I'm I'm with you on that. Um, but I think in the moment, I don't think I would have been able to tie any of it to sexuality, just because I was so deep into denial about that. Looking back, I feel like I can say probably at least 50%. Um, 
I'd say probably about 50% sexuality and then like various percentages on situations and not having vocabulary and, and things like that. But just like I said earlier, I, I felt fundamentally different from so many people around me and I couldn't really put a pin in what that was until, um, until I was quite a bit older and I was like, okay, it's because I'm gay and like was able to kind of take on that title as well as just accept that idea. So great answer. Um, talk about your mission. You went to Guatemala was, was, and you just, I hope our listeners could just see B just had this huge smile <laughs> came on her face and I just sense there's, you know, just the minute you say missionary to some, to a lot of people, they just light up about that experience in their life. Talk about Guatemala. Was that a better time for you as far as your emotional health? Honestly, yeah. I would wake up um, and just have a smile on my face and be like, I don't even know what this is. Like, this doesn't seem real. This doesn't seem possible. But like, I am sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of these people. And obviously, sometimes we wouldn't find people. And sometimes if we couldn't find anybody, we'd preach to the dogs because who else is there? <laughs> but like missions they have a very, very soft spot in my heart. And my mission is very special to me. I sincerely think that in a lot of ways it's saved my life. Um, like my mission, we're all very close. A lot of us are still good friends today. My mission presidents um, and I are very close. They're like a second set of parents to me. Right now they're in Costa Rica as the temple presidents. So it's a little hard because I used to see them at least once a month and now I don't don't hardly ever see them or talk to them. But... The mission is something that people talk about missions and they say it's the hardest thing you'll ever do and they leave it kind of vague like that. I think the reason that it's so hard is because it breaks your heart in so many ways, but it's so good because it rebuilds it in every way that you would never expect. Um, so my mission personally is something that sincerely like has changed my entire life, my entire outlook. Um, I've always loved people. I've been outgoing so going and knocking doors wasn't an issue for me. My companions in the MTC, they would cry because they didn't know the language. I grew up speaking Spanish, and I would cry because I felt like I didn't know the gospel. <laughs> and so to be able to like learn that and really let it sink in, really started to feel like Jeremiah, like the fire in my bones that could not be stopped. <laughs> and so, yeah, there's just a very, a very special place in my heart for my mission and for anybody who is willing to go on a mission. I love that. We have a son serving right now, and so we're tender for missionaries at our home, and we always have been. And yeah, I love what you just said. The mission kind of, I don't know exactly how you said it, breaks your heart and then rebuilds it in mm -hmm. a better way in a long. That's a pretty cool, I like that. You know, I think that's consistent with just sometimes being refined through very difficult experiences that give us Christ-like attributes and perspective that aren't possible without really difficult refining experiences. Talk about um, talk more about why you think your emotional health improved during your mission. Oh, is it because you're focused on others? You don't have to deal with your sexuality, and mm -hmm. you've got a some. You've just got this greater cause that you've got all these brothers and sisters. They're part of the same cause. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but just <laughs> thoughts. I think they're those are very common words that we hear often, and I definitely agree with them. Um, for me, I feel very fortunate. I'd never, um, how do you say, like caught feelings for any of my companions. Um, 
And so that was really good to just really, I really, really wanted to go and dedicate my time to doing the best I could. Uh, I think I was probably a little bit dramatic. I, I told my friends and family, like, the only reason I would come home is to be sent home in a pine box, <laughs> um, which is a little dramatic, but it was true. Like, that's how much of me I've just wanted to pour into. I love dedicating myself to things, whether it's um, how I dedicated myself in team sports before the mission or going on a mission or even now, like, whatever I find like humanitarian or work or school, I believe that when you do things, you should be all in. Um, and there weren't there. Honestly, I don't, I don't get very homesick. So there weren't really times that I wanted to come home on my mission. There were times that I would like be sad and be like, Oh, I wish my dad was here. He speaks Spanish. He would teach with me and we would do these cool things. Or like, I wish my twin sister was here because she's my twin. And that's half of my heart is far away. <laughs> But overall, I, I really didn't get very homesick. Um, and I just I just wanted to work. By the end of my mission, uh, my poor companions, <laughs> um, I, I trained a lot of my mission and my poor, cute little brand new companions. I'd be like, we're not having P-Day, we're going to teach. <laughs> like, that's just how much I just wanted to, like, go and share with people what we knew. And, and they helped control me a little bit. Like, hermana, sister, we need to have P-Day and we need to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of times... Um, like I didn't, I didn't, it was like, take no thought for what you will put on, for what you will eat, like just go. And that's how I felt like there was one companion I was training. <laughs> I don't know if she listens to this, but maybe I'll have to tell her about it just so she can. Um, she's my only gringo companion and she's, she's a tall girl. She's a big girl. And I forgot to feed her <laughs> because I wanted to teach so badly and being brand new to the mission. She just thought that's how it was. <laughs> Poor kid was like three weeks in and almost fainted at one of our houses. And I was like, what is happening? She's like, you need to feed me more. It's like, oh my gosh, I do need to feed you more. That's a great story. So, <laughs> Talk about, and I, our listeners have heard my thoughts on this. I've, we've had a lot of people that have served missions that are gay. And with some concern as they leave on their mission, they're going to fall in love with a companion or... Mm -hmm. Um, it's going to be a difficult experience, and almost every experience is just the opposite, that they don't fall in love with a companion, and they're just part of the sisterhood or brotherhood where they're all working towards a, a higher goal, and no one's talking about dating, no one's, and so that sort of part of the equation sort of out of the table, and so it seems in most situations it's a really great time for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints during their mission, and often towards the end of the mission, and when they get home is when it gets a little harder because they have to face yeah. the reality they're gay and they're straight missionaries, especially once you get home, start to date and get married. And I, I don't know if anybody wants to do a study or if it's been done, but I sense, you know, that time coming home could particularly be difficult as, you know, missionaries start to date and marry and our gay missionaries coming home have had this wonderful experience and now they're kind of, and they fit in and they belong. There was no mm -hmm. issue of belonging. And now they don't fit in again and feel like they belong. And so talk about coming home and just, um, you said you came out at 22. And to, yeah, mostly to myself. To yourself. Yeah. And so you've come home from your mission. You're roughly 22. I was, I was 23, 23, almost 23 so you when came I came out, home. And so you kind of came out to yourself on your mission. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, for myself, I was able to finally just say, okay, like this is what it is. Um, I'm still a missionary. I'm still going to work hard 
Cool. And I just kind of left it on the back burner. Cool. Coming home for me, I don't even usually call it coming home because Guatemala felt like my home. I mean, I know I have multiple homes here in the States, but I was devastated. I did not want to go home. I told my mission president I was going to run away. (laughs) I mean, I I told you I can be a little dramatic. (laughs) Um, When I finally, we we finally got to the Salt Lake airport and we were coming out. It was me and and my first MTC companion. We came home together and she's awesome. Um, We walked off the airplane and started walking to the top of the escalators where all of the families are. We made it down a couple of steps. We decided not to go on the escalator, but on like the actual stairs. We made it down probably like five steps and we both freaked out and turned around and went back up and like, had awesome. little like companion pep talk and like little prayer. And we're like, okay, we can do this. We're actually home. Let's go. And so like our families totally saw us and they were like excited and had signs and like both of our families is just kind of like, what? <laughs> Because we like turned around and went back. We're like, what do we, we don't want to go home. What are we doing? <laughs> and That's really so cool. after a little pep talk, maybe took like five minutes and we pulled ourselves together and went back <laughs> and like saw our families. And, and for me, everything was totally fine um, until I gave my twin sister a hug. And then I just started sobbing. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to be here. Why do I have to come back? You know how much I love it, even though I miss you. Like, let's both just go together. You can come with me this time. And I just lost it. And so then we're driving home in the car and I'm from Lehigh. And so we're in Salt Lake and they're like, what do you want to do? You want to go eat? You want to do this? And I was like, I want to go to Temple Square and be with the missionaries. So the kind people that they are took me to Temple Square and let me be with the missionaries. That's really cool. And so I saw my little tag and the missionaries are like, why don't you have a flag on your tag? What are you doing? Because <laughs> like, I'm not a missionary here anymore and just like crying again. <laughs> and so then they're finally like, hey, let's let's go home for real. Like it's time to go. <laughs> and and I just I just remember being like so, so, so sad. And I didn't get released till the next day. So I like got home. Still went to bed on time, like shared a room with my little sister because we're, I couldn't be alone. <laughs> I didn't like, they had a phone for me, but I was like, I can't have a phone. I'm a missionary. <laughs> um, I even went to bed like in the same clothes that I came home on the airplane and then went to the church the next morning in those clothes <laughs> and taking that missionary tag off that, that like broke my heart. <laughs> um, And just after that, um, probably the first like two or three months after coming home, it took a a little while to get rid of the accent and (laughs) speak English again. (laughs) Um, But I I sincerely tried dating. I tried dating men. I would go on anywhere between like one and six dates a week for like three months. And I was just super, super miserable. The only times I felt like I was like, mostly happy was when I could see my friends from my mission that were also home um, and they would talk about like they would have their little like quote-unquote girl talk like I want to tell you about this boy and just like I don't want to talk about boys but whatever if it means you're going to talk to me then we'll talk about it <laughs> um, but just being so like out of place like how you talked about really belonging in the mission and not belonging afterwards like that was very stark contrast for me um and then around that time probably like three or four months after I I met a girl and we started dating and it was the what I thought was the best thing in the world (laughs) um and 
I don't know that there are a lot of people even in my family that know this story. I don't know who is or isn't going to listen to this, but we started dating and, and like we dated for probably like two or two and a half years. And like, honestly, it was awesome. Like I, I was like, Hey, this is what it's supposed to feel like. This is finally like I'm in my groove. This is how it's supposed to be. This is like, this is what they're talking about when they say, come home and fall in love and get married. And, and like we talked about getting married, it ended up not working out. Um, it was, that was also really devastating, but that's in the past and we can leave it there. <laughs> but I think that was really when it was like cemented into me, like, okay, like this is how I feel fulfilled. This is how it's going to work for me. And the next battle was how to balance that with the church and with the gospel. And and it's been rough and it's still rough sometimes, but I I just try and be the best that I can be and take things one day at a time. And honestly, like, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. <laughs> And I mean, that's kind of all that I really have is a lot like there's a lot of things that I just don't know. But if I feel like if I can feel like I pray and study and like feel like I'm in a good place and I'm dating women, like to me, that's saying that God is not condemning me. It took me a long time to realize that. I remember sitting in an institute class and being told you will not be held accountable for the things you can't control. In my context, that is attractions and just breaking down and sobbing and feeling like, okay, the gates of heaven are finally open again for me um, because I sincerely thought they were closed after coming home and starting to date women. Um, but I can confidently say I feel like they're open. Um, yeah, that was a lot. It's <laughs> good. Are you out to your parents and your uh -huh. family? Do they know you're gay? Yeah. So my coming out story, again, I feel like is a little bit different than most people's. Um, the girl that I mentioned that I was dating before, she, her parents actually went to my parents' house a few months into us dating and told them. And nobody ever wants to be outed, much less by parents that are frustrated and believe that you're brainwashing their child. <laughs> And so when that happened, I don't know all of the details of the conversation other than her parents were really upset and my parents were, the word I would use for my dad is probably shocked. Uh, my mom, she's a mama dragon, if you know what that means. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's like a, an organization that, that our mothers who are allies to LGBT people, but she definitely stood up for me and has told me always since that she just wants me to be happy, whatever that means for me and that God will work it out. Um, so they, they found out in an unfortunate way, which was not me letting them know, but other people letting them know. And I feel very blessed that they didn't let that experience like stain their view of their child. Like they, I feel like they really have stood up for me and really worked on accepting me. I don't know that it was hard for them I think it seems like it's always a little bit harder for dads than moms um but I do feel that they do accept me and they 
they care about me a lot. Um, so that's how they found out. My mom encouraged me to talk to my siblings. Um, and they were all like, yeah, we know. Like, <laughs> they're just like, okay. <laughs> um, it wasn't a surprise to them at all. It wasn't, I don't think it was a surprise to my mom either. She's like, I've kind of always kn known that. <laughs> um, it's kind of funny because she kept journals for us when we were small children. And when I was like around like three or four, I told her like, mom, when I grow up, I'm going to marry a woman <laughs> at the age of like three years old. So wow. I mean, she's, she knows she's a mom. Moms know. Um, probably about a year after that, I wrote a handwritten letter to each of my aunts and uncles because we're really close to them on my dad's side and my grandparents and the reason I chose to wrote, write them a letter is because I felt like they needed their space to process things without me being there or even on the phone so that they could go through their own process and then talk to me if they wanted to talk to me. Um, my aunts have reached out and said, like, we love you no matter what, um, along with a couple of my uncles. Uh, but overall, most of the time, it's just don't ask, don't tell. So we don't really talk about it in our family, um, which to me is a little unfortunate because I would like to be able to talk about something that is a big part of my life. Um, but like I, I just kind of leave that up to them. Thanks for sharing more of your story, B. And as our listeners know, I'm writing a book and one of the chapters, I think it's chap it's a chapter about burdens and things we say that add burden to our LGBTQ members. And one of them is the one you just touched on is once you're out, let's don't talk about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, I think, and some parent, I've asked parents to respond to that in LGBTQ. And one parent responded with a really thoughtful thing. It's sort of like, but we, if we're LDS, we're encouraged to be LDS. We're encouraged to talk about it. We're encouraged to share our experiences. We're encouraged to take on that label. And that's part of our identity as, as LDS, and we talk about it. And to sort of say this other identity that you have is gay, um, that's a part of you and something that's important to you, we don't want to hear about that. Some parent just pointed out sort of that, and it helped me to better understand why people need to talk about it if they want to. Yeah. Um, and I think we need, you know, that's why I admire you being on the podcast right now. Um, cause I think we need to learn to talk about, you know, people's sexual orientation. And I think our listeners probably understand this. You know, if you're straight, you sort of talk about it by default. You talk about who you're dating and, and this heteronormative culture, that's a vocabulary term someone introduced me to, um, straight people do come out all the time. They talk about their crushes. They talk about who they're dating. You know, my wife and I went on a trip together and so. You know, we're sort of talking about it just by living our lives. And I recognize that LGBTQ people, if you talk about it, we sort of say, oh, you're just trying to rub it in our face or, you know, you, and so it adds to your burden um, versus our ability as Latter-day Saints to better meet your needs and try to create space for you. Um, talk about why, even though you've dated women and why you stay in the church. Because some would say, well, you should leave the church if you're dating women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, people have talked to me about that. And to me, they're not mutually ex exclusive things. And to me, they're equally as much a part of my life and my heart. 
uh, like the church and the gospel, as well as being gay and being in the LGBT community. Um, and I think maybe in some ways I'm quite a bit different than a lot of other LGBT people just because, one, because of that, a lot of people don't want to stay in the church, which is unfortunate. I feel like a lot of times they feel rejected or or pushed one way or another, and I don't think that's the purpose of the gospel. Um, so for me, just knowing that the God that I believe in sincerely loves me, and he truly knows me, and that is something that sometimes I do have to be reminded, but not too often. I feel I'm very blessed with that testimony. Um, I've noticed in my word that is a question that comes up a lot is, how do I know that God knows me? How do I know that God loves me? And it's a hard question to answer, and it's a hard question to ask. So I, I feel very blessed to feel very strongly that God does know me and he loves me. And I don't know, like, <laughs> that's Do you wish of... you could give up one just to create, you know, because some have talked about it, it's a double bind mm-hmm. where you've got a belief um, in our church and a real deep testimony of our church and the double double bind is you're gay and you'd love to spend your life with somebody and not be alone, which mm-hmm. to me is a legitimate hope. Um, and I had the same hope when I was dating at your age, but I didn't have the double bind. You right. know, I didn't have to choose. Do you sometimes wish you could just give up on one and and leave the double bind? You know, or are you willing to just kind of stay in this this ambiguity and say I'm not willing to give up one because they're both a part of me? I think if you would have asked me a couple years ago, I would have been willing to give one up. Um, but right now, where I'm at in my life, I don't feel like I need to give either of them up because I feel that if God wants us to be the most that we can be, then I need both of them. Um, And maybe that's just because I can't really imagine life without being gay or without the church. Um, But especially just, I don't know, being able to fulfill whatever it is that my purpose in life is, which is kind of difficult to say because I don't know that I necessarily believe like every person has only one purpose in life. We have multiple purposes. Um, But I do feel that part of who I am and, and what I should be doing is sharing with other people. Um, And I don't feel that I would be able to do that in the same capacity without both of these things. That's a good answer. I just recognize the complexities of your situation. Um, and my heart just goes out to you. And my other friends that are sort of imp- faced with impossible choices. Uh, tell me about, are you out in your ward? Are you out to your bishop? Yeah. Yeah. So to my knowledge, my whole ward knows. Maybe they don't, but I think they do. At least most of them. We have a lot of new people now, hard, so yeah. um, lots of turnover in the singles ward. My bishop definitely knows. Um, the elders, quorum president, and relief society president definitely know. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but they've honestly, all of them have been really great. Um, I've had a few people approach me like, "Hey, I have 
uh, friends that are that are gay or LGBT or or whatever the thing is, and I want to know how to be like a better friend to them. Cool. How does that is, make you feel when someone asks that question? I think it's awesome. I think it's amazing that that love can exist, and that so many people are willing to share it. Um, I think it's really cool. I've had people in my ward share experiences like, yeah, I have a trans friend that is right now taking mis- uh, missionary lessons, but they don't like, he has a lot of questions or she has a lot of questions. And so how do you deal with these things? And so I think it's, it's honestly like really, I don't even have a good word for it, but like really uplifting to be able to see people and think like, okay, these are real things that are happening in your life. And like, I can support you in them and to feel like that I do have a place there because they my word sincerely makes me feel like I do have a place there. Talk about we before we went live you talked about your bishop and you do really appreciate your bishop. What mm-hmm. if you're if other bishops or local leaders are listening and wanting to better meet the needs of LGBTQ members, what advice do you have for them? Oh gosh. Well, maybe I, it's what I, your bishop's doing for you or other bishops haven't been able to do yeah. for you. I mean, I don't feel like I'm qualified to give advice to anybody, <laughs> but something that has been really useful in my life is when people ask questions to sincerely try and understand, not not just for an answer and not to change whatever's going on, but just asking questions to sincerely understand. And I feel like we as human beings can recognize when we're asked questions, what the purpose of those questions are is, I don't know how to say, but like we know if we're being attacked, we know if we're being interrogated, we know if we're trying to be like fixed or a project and all of these things I'm putting like little air quotes. Um, but we also know when, when it's like a heart to heart and we know when it's something that's sincere and true and meaningful and kind. So I would say things that have been the most helpful for me in any kind of leadership in the church have been when people just ask me questions to understand and then listen. And sometimes they may not even give advice, but if they do, like, hopefully it's something that they've studied and prayed about. Um, One thing I really appreciated about my previous bishop was that he was very open in the idea of like, hey, I've never... I've never dealt with something like this before. I've never met a gay person before. So you have these questions or concerns or you're telling me these things. And because I've never dealt with this, like, I want to go home and study and pray and let's talk again next week. So even if it's not an immediate thing, even though we're an instant gratification society, like it's so comforting to me to be able to think like, okay, like somebody cares about me enough that they're going to go and talk to God about like, what to do with me? Cool. <laughs> um, and it can be hard and it can be disheartening, but I think overall just be loving because we don't know. We just don't know. Good answer. I think you're better at giving advice than you give yourself credit <laughs> for. I think a lot of listeners may be thinking you're really helping them, maybe without using the advice word, but what you're sharing be. Uh, I remember Ben Shalati. Um, some of our listeners may know him. He's you. You know Ben. Yeah. He's gay and in his thirties, and he's come out to multiple bishops. <laughs> and he said one of his most recent bishops, and I don't know if this is the most recent one, 
when he came out to his bishop, his bishop said something like, what do I need to learn so that I can better minister to you? Yeah. And the humility of that bishop to be able to, you know, because us bishops, I'm a former bishop, we kind of want to be the answer guys. And and I love, and you suggested the same thing, is be willing to ask questions, be willing to learn, be willing to... Um, I have a quote that maybe I can find. It's on my Twitter feed. I don't know how quickly I can find it, but I just love um, just the humility to learn. And I love, and I don't know if your bishop, I don't know if you're dating women or now if your bishop knows that, but that's something that, you know, if I'm a bishop and I'm counseling a gay member that is dating the same sex, I would want to create space that that member would tell me what's going on in his or her life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I would want to feel like I'm a safe person and love this person. I call it non-agenda love, where I love this person enough that this person's going to keep me in their life and so that I can continue to be an influence um, for good and that they will continue to trust me. And even if they go down a road that at some point they feel regret over, that they will sense my non-agenda love and, they'll be one of, and I'll be one of the very first people to reach back out to and say, okay, now I feel this way, or this is what's going on, and just mm-hmm. to be a safe person. And I think adults and friends can do that. Bishops can do that. Bishops have a, an added responsibility, you know, with a priesthood responsibility there. But any general, any other thoughts about bishops and what they can do for LGBTQ members? Yeah. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I love what you just said about, like, non-agenda love. And just I think about the bishop that I have right now, and he is— honestly wonderful. He's a very, very good man, a very humble man. And I personally, I, I do date. Um, I have been dating somebody for a little while now. Female, uh-huh. same sex. Dating. Yeah. And he knows that. Um, I remember texting him at one point being like, oh my gosh, I think, I think this girl's going to be my girlfriend. Like, what do I do? <laughs> and he was just like, well, you can come talk to me. If you want to talk to me, I'll listen to you. <laughs> um, just kind of being almost like another parental figure or just somebody that's saying like, Hey, be smart, be safe. Um, but obviously I can't make your choices for you. And, and it's, it's nice to hear that, like be smart and be safe, but also make your own choices. Um, and it seems like he's supportive. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Bishop, (laughs) but sincerely, I'm not saying like bishops should should or shouldn't be supportive of same gender dating or or relationships or whatever, but just to realize that people's beliefs and thoughts and hearts can change literally day to day and be able to kind of roll with that and not, like you said, not put an agenda on them, not put judgment on them because that's when we start making the right choices, I think. So a couple of thoughts. One is I do want to read this. It's a, from one of my institute teachers, S. Michael Wilcox. And my wife helped me track down this quote. I vaguely remembered it. So my wife came through. In some matters, it's better to be intellectually uncertain rather than superficially sure. This will still leave us with a great deal to be certain about while maintaining the humility to learn. And I love that as maybe, you know, adopting our feelings about our LGBTQ members is um, it's cool to be intellectually uncertain rather than superficially sure. So I love the bishop that asks questions. 
And um, I love you texted your bishop when you started to date. <laughs> to me, that's a bishop home run that he, you knew he was safe to receive that text. And you, as his bishop, wanted to know that. Now, he may have read that text and go, well, that's not exactly the text I was hoping for. <laughs> yeah, um, probably. <laughs> and so, but he got that text and and you, and you he's in your life and you're talking with him. And to mm-hmm. me, that's one of, that to me is bishop home run is to keep everybody they have stewardship responsibility for in their life. And Bishops have a responsibility to keep their members, you know, in the church and on the covenant path and following the teachings of the church. And so there's probably some, most priesthood leaders would probably be, you know, nervous about you dating and, and at some point we need to assess your, um, your, you know, temple worthiness and your right. ability to fully participate. And I think that your relationship with your bishop is you could continue to have that discussion. Mm-hmm. And you can figure that out, and you won't recognize that he has a responsibility there. Um, I did get a message today from a woman, um, and when I get these messages, I don't speak for the church. I just share my thoughts, but she was asking about same-sex dating and how a bishop would handle that. And I said, well, on one side, you'd have a bishop that would adopt what I would call the BYU Honor Code feeling about that, that any form of intimacy, I don't quite know the language, would be, you know, against teachings. So that would be hand-holding um, any sort of affection. Why other bishops would adopt the same rules they'd adopt for heterosexual couples dating in their singles ward, which you've got to keep the law of chastity. And then that opens the door to this kind of the same things that a heterosexual couple. And I'm not, I'm not in this podcast placing um, suggestion on where a bishop should be. I just recognize that there's a range of how there's nothing in the handbook that sort of answers that, that I'm aware mm-hmm. of. And so bishops are going to handle that differently. And I think if you're, this is not to you, B, but just listeners, I think, you know, and this is the advice I gave to this person is talk to your bishop yeah, and sort of get all on the same page with regarding the rules about if you're going to date someone of the same gender, what does that mean? I think most bishops would kind of say, oh, that's yellow flag-ish even dating, and that could take you down the road of falling in love and being in a same-sex marriage, which makes your ability to fully participate in the church much different. And I think a lot of bishops would say, well, you know, let's just set this, let's all get on the same page and I'll just trust you as you're going forward in your life and empower you. I call it self-determination. I would, I would always invite someone to stay in the teachings of our church, but I think our doctrine and what Christ, Heavenly Father is doing is letting everybody self-determine what path is best for them? Any thoughts on all of that that you want to come back to? Be things that I said that are a little unsettling, or things you want to add on to, or um, not really. I guess I just I agree. I'm definitely not trying to make any suggestions to anybody. Uh, I I don't speak for the church, obviously. Um, and something that my bishop counsels with me often about is like the choices we make take us down certain paths, and those paths depend on the choices we make. And as we make more choices, we change our path however we go. Um, and so I guess it is it is important to remember that and to see that and be constantly evaluating and reevaluating yourself and where you're going and, and what you want to be doing, I guess. And That's good. <laughs> and I sense you're just going slow. I, I sense there's a maturity about what you're doing and a thoughtfulness. And, and so I admire you doing that. 
talk about, if you want to, just your ideal hope for the future. Do you want to, regarding your station as a, do you want to be in a same-sex marriage and share your life with a woman? Do you want to marry a man? Do you want to stay celibate? Um, if you're okay sharing just what your hopes are with our listeners. Yeah, yeah no, that's great. Um, for me personally, a friend asked me a question that really opened my mind a while ago, and she asked me, if you could do anything and have no consequences, what would it be? So immediately I asked her what her answer would be. And she said it would be to live in a mansion in Texas and eat ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner <laughs> because there would be no consequences. And and as I thought about it, my my first and continual reaction is if I could do anything and have no consequences, like I I sincerely want to marry a woman. I want to have a cute wife and a cute house and a cute life and a, hopefully a cute dog and everything will just be like rainbows and sunshine. <laughs> would you, would you um, be in the church if you, if you could choose any option? I think, yes. Like I personally can see myself always going to church and always praying. Not to say that that won't change because I don't know if that would change or not, but I don't see it changing. I mean, I've been dating for years now and it hasn't really changed. Um, I also tend to to say, like, I think that God can do anything, so I don't ever close the door completely on, like, marrying a man and being in that kind of relationship, but I don't really see it working out for me or being happy for me. Um, and maybe it could be. I don't, I don't know. I just, when I think about it, I don't get the same, like, passion or... or fireworks or whatever the word is that you want to say as if as when I think about like yeah I want to have a wife like to me yes like I would love to find somebody eventually I don't feel like I'm ready for that right now but eventually find somebody and not even necessarily settle down but like have adventures with them and, and go do humanitarian work together. oh yeah go and take her to see all over the world and and do all kinds of things together. I just like you answering that question. I I think it's okay for trusted people to ask others what their hope is and to hear that. And there's a side of my personality that would never want to take hope out of someone's life, and unless their hope um, reduced freedoms of other people, or mm, right, you know, there are probably some examples where a hope. <laughs> I don't know if the guys on ISIS have hope to kill all the Americans. That's probably true. So, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to be flippant. But in a, you're a really sincere, responsible adult with a great heart. And, I, you know, I just, I guess I just get tears in my eyes that I can't somehow make both of those hopes happen for you. And I think all of us allies that step in this space just, we want to put our arms around you because... How, what a difficult spot you're in. You love our church. You're, you're so wired for service. B, you've served a mission. You've done humanitarian trips all over the world. You're just focused on helping other people. And you're deeply committed to what you do. I can sure sense that on your mission. And, and you're deeply committed to the church, and you would love to have a life partner. So I just, you know, I just leave it at the Savior's feet and and invite, you know, I, yeah, if I were your bishop, I'd invite you to to stay in the teachings of our church, but I'd also recognize the complexity of your situation and 
and just, you know, invite you to stay close to God and continue to make good decisions and, and make your way forward the best way you can. Yeah. And, um, that's the way I personally, you know, with the LGBTQ people in my life, um, some do want to do a same, uh, mixed orientation marriage. And uh, I think if that's someone's hope, I would want to validate that hope too. I wouldn't project mm-hmm. that hope on you and you'd, um, I met with a young man who um, confided in me he's gay and really wants to marry a woman. And I, a few years ago, I probably would have dampened his hopes. <laughs> uh, but I've done enough podcasts with mixed orientation marriages that I wanted to give him hope that that was something that was possible for him. But I would want every individual hope to be unique to that person without sort of taking somebody. And so I have hope for him. That, and if that that's what he will end up doing and um that takes him out of the double bind um yeah. and he can fully participate in the church and have a partner and i recognize that that isn't what you feel is right and i would never sort of invite you then to consider that um sounds like you've considered it and you haven't closed that door completely i love personal revelation and i love um our core doctrine that heavenly parents love you be and that nothing you can do can ever take you outside of their love, that that love is unconditional and um, that they will continue to guide you and love and help you um, as you move forward in your life. Um, are you okay with all that? Yeah, definitely. We're kind of at the hour mark. I've made a New Year's resolution to try to be about an hour. We'll see how that goes, listeners. <laughs> Any other thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? I mean, definitely thank you for for having me here and for saying all of those things. I sense a a sincerity in in the things that you've shared, um, and for creating a space that's safe to share. I would encourage anybody who feels they want to share their story that whether they do that through a podcast or social media or just talking to people, like please share your story because it can save lives, um, and it helps us all know that we're not alone. Yeah, just a lot of love and appreciation and and hope. Hope. B. Winwood, thank you for being on an episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. You have a great life ahead of you, and I. there's a wonderful spirit. I hope our listeners can feel just your spirit of goodness and service and wanting to do what's right and helping so many people. And it would be really cool to have you in the podcast in 30 years. I'll be 88. <laughs> I don't know if podcasts will be there, but you have a great life ahead of you. And I think your older self at 38, 48, 58 is going to, you know, give you just a lot of big hugs for the decisions you're making now and the foundation you're laying for the rest of your life. And I think you have a great life ahead of you. And I think that God you're trusting in, you'll be able to talk. If you could come back, I'm just making this up and talk about how that trust in God has answered your prayers and helped you understand your road. And I think you're going to make good decisions in your life. And I think you have a great life ahead of you. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Thanks for all you're doing to share these podcasts with others and connect more people into um, the stories. The real heroes on this podcast are our guests like B. Thank you for listening. 